Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. Talking about George Orwell. Um, mentioning, uh, Techrific says, the mentioning of the publication of Moore's novel, East of the Waters, prompted me to go on a fact-finding mission. So often when we've had discussions on books on the list, we've had very different reactions to them. Here are two reactions that I think noteworthy on East of Waters. George Gizzing, a contemporary writer of Moore, wrote, there was some pathos and power in latter part, but miserable writing, the dialogue often grotesquely phrased. While George Orwell had this to say, far and away the best of the ten books in the series, describing the novel as Moore's best and comparing it to W. Somerset Maugham's On Human Bondage. Orwell noted certain stylistic flaws, but argued that its fund- fundamental sincerity makes its surface faults almost negligible. Really interesting to see that Orwell valued sincerity of intent above any faults in style. In today's literary criticism, intent is never discussed, but diagnosing flaws is a lesion. I don't think, um, I don't really don't think I can consider either of those things. I'm very basic. Is it boring writing? Like, are you saying things because you feel like saying them or because you feel like I'm interested? And if it's not the latter, then I don't care. I don't care what you have to say. I just don't. Unless you're saying it because you think I care or you're making an effort for it to be interesting, entertaining, engaging, you know, engaging at the least, not boring. Um, and there's zero effort in this book for that. Like, the author has put no effort whatsoever into writing for an audience. It's, he's writing for himself and no one else. Uh, and I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get why you would say something in 10 minutes that you can say in 10 seconds. Because the other nine minutes and 50 seconds is just masturbation. Like, that's just you doing things for your own pleasure and wasting nine minutes, 50 time, fifty seconds of the time of your audience. Anyway, um, I hate this book. Chapter three. When the boots asked me in the morning if I would like to have my water otted, it seemed to me that I was back in London, but the bareness of the hotel bedroom soon stimulated my consciousness, and with a pang yesterday returned to me its telegram, its journey, and the hissing of the Countess Kathleen in the ancient Antient concert rooms. I haven't been shown Ireland as a land of endless enchantment, I said, turning over, and perhaps the wisest thing for me to do would be to go away by the morning boat. But the morning boat was already in the offing, Word should have been left overnight that I was to be called at seven. An impulsive departure would be in strict keeping with myself. A note from Yeats enclosing a paragraph to be sent to the papers. Mr George Moore arrived in Dublin for the performance of the Countess Kathleen, but the hissing of the play so shocked his artistic sensibilities that he could not abide another day in Dublin and went away by that eight o'clock boat. The right thing to do, without a doubt, only I had not done it, and to go away by the eleven o'clock boat from the north wall would not be quite the same thing. There was an evening boat at eight to consider. It would give me time to see Yeats, with whom I had an appointment, and to find out if there was stuffing enough in Edward 
to hold out against the scandal that this pamphlet had provoked. The cross or the guillotine, into what land have I drifted, and slipping out of bed, I stood, in pyjamas, for some moments asking myself if a paragraph in the morning announcing my sudden departure would cause Ireland to blush for her disgraceful Catholicism. But it is difficult to be angry with Ireland on a May morning when the sun is shining and through clouds slightly more broken than yesterday's but full of the same gentle encouraging light, dim, ashen clouds, out of which a white edging rose slowly, calling attention to the bright blue, the robe that perhaps none would wear. All about the square, the old brick houses stood sunning themselves and I could see a chimney stack, steeped in rich shadow, touched with light, and beyond it, and under it, upon an illuminated wall, the direct outline of a gable, and at the end of the streets the mountains appeared, veiled in haze, delicate and refined as the Countess Kathleen. A town wandering between mountains and sea, I said as I stood before my glass shaving, forgot of Edward, forgetful of Edward, for below me was Stephen's green, and it took me back to the beginning of my childhood to one day when I stole away, and inspired by an uncontrollable desire to break the monotony of infancy, stripped myself of my clothes and ran naked in front of my nurse or governess, screaming with delight at the embarrassment I was causing her. She could not take me home along the streets naked, and I had to throw my clothes out of reach into the hawthorn, a cap and jacket, shirt and trousers. Since those days, the green had been turned into an ornamental park by a neighbour of mine in Mayo, and given to the public, and telling the hall porter that if Mr. Yeats called, he would find me in the green, I went out thinking how little the soul of a man changes. It declares itself in the beginning and remains with us to the end. Was this visit to Ireland anything more than a desire to break the monotony of my life by stripping myself of my clothes and running ahead, a naked gale, screaming Brian Boo? There is no one in the world that amuses one as much as oneself. Whoever is conscious of these acts cannot fail to see life as a comedy and himself as an actor in it, but the faculty of seeing oneself as from afar does not save a man from his destiny. In spite of his foreseeing, he is dragged on to the dreaded bourne like an animal, supposing always that animals do not foresee. But a spring morning will not tolerate the water of destiny and of dreaded bournes. A glow of sunlight catches our cheeks and we begin to think that life is a perfect gift and that all things are glad to be alive. Our eyes go to the horse between the shafts. He seems to munch in his nosebag, conscious of the goodness of the day and the dogs bark gaily and run, delighted with the world, interested in everything. The first thing I saw on entering the green was a poor, was a girl loosening her hair to the wind and following her down a sunny alley. I found myself suddenly by a brimming lake, curving like some wonderful calligraphy round a thickly planted headland, the shadows of some great elms reflected in the water and the long young leaves of the willow sweeping the surface. The span of a stone bridge hastened my steps, and leaning over the parapet I stood enchanted by the view of rough shores thickly wooded and high rocks down which the water reflected oh, came foaming to linger in a quiet pool. I enjoyed standing on the bridge, feeling the breeze that came rustling by, flowing through me as if I were planted, plant or cloud. The waterfowl beguiled me, many varieties of duck, green-headed sheldrakes, beautiful, vivacious teal body hanging out of great wings, whither had they come from their nests among the cliffs of Howth. Anyhow, they are here, being fed by children and admired by me, a nursemaid rushes forward, a boy is led away screaming and wondering 
what the cause of his grief might be. I went in quest of new interests, finding one in the equestrian statue that ornamented the town, the centre of the green. There were parterres of flowers about it, and in shadow people of all ages sat half asleep, half awake, enjoying the spring morning like myself, perhaps more than I did, they being less conscious of their enjoyment. My mood being sylvan, I sought the forest, and after wandering for some time among the hawthorns, came upon a nook seemingly unknown to anybody but be that a sweet scent had tempted out of its hive. The insect was bustling about in the lilac bloom, reminding me that yesterday the crocuses were coming, and though they are an ugly flower, like cheap crockery, it was a sad surprise to find them over, and daffodils nodding in woods already beginning to smell rooky, and the rooks, how soon they had finished building. Before their eggs were hatched, the hyacinths were wasting, and the tulips opening the pale yellow tulip, which I admire so much, and the purple tulip, which I detest, for it reminds me of an Arab drapery that I once used to see hanging out of a shop in the Rue de Rivoli. But the red tulip with yellow stripes is as beautiful as a Chinese vase, and it is never so beautiful as when it is growing among a bed of forget-me-nots. The tall, feudal flower swaying over the lowly forget-me-nots well-named indeed, for one cannot easily forget them. For one can easily forget them. And thinking of Gautier's sonnet, Moi je suis la tulipe, une fleur de Hollande, I remembered that lilies would succeed the tulips, and after the lilies would come roses and then carnations. A woman once told me that all that goes before is a preliminary leading up to the carnation. After them are dahlias, <coughs> to be sure, and I love them, but the garden is over in September, and the year declines into mist and shortening days, and those papery flowers ugly as the mops with which the coachmen wash carriage wheels. All the same, this much can be said in praise of the winter months, that they are long and sorrow with us. But the spring passes by, mocking us, telling us that the flowers return as youthful as last year's, but we are wandered on. Now enchanted by the going and coming of the sun, one moment implanting a delicious warmth between my shoulder blades, and at the next leaving me cold, forgetful of yeats, until I saw him in the black cloak striding in a green alley, his gait more than ever like a rook's, but the simile that had once amused me began to weary me for reception, and resolving to banish it from my mind for evermore, I listened to him telling that he had been to the Kildare Street Club without finding Edward. Mr. Martin had gone out earlier than usual that morning, the hall porter had said, and I growled out to Yeats, why couldn't he came to see the tulips in the green instead of bustling off in search of a theologian, listening to nonsense in some frowsy presbytery, the sparrows, yeats, how fool the quarrel they are, and now they have all gone away into that thorn bush. By the water's edge we met a willing duck, pursued by two drakes, a lover and a moralist. In my good nature I intervened, for the lover was being hustled, off again and again by mistaking the moralist for the lover. I drove the lover away, and left the moralist, who, feeling that he could not give the duck the explanation expected from him, looked extremely vexed and embarrassed. And this little incident seemed to me full of human nature, and Yeats's thoughts were far above nature that morning, for he refused to listen, even when a boy pinched a nursemaid, and he answered his rude question very prettily with, she would be badly off without one. 
The springtime, the springtime, wake up and see it, Yeats, I cried, poking him with this objection, that before he met the Indian who had taught him metaphysics, he won't want, his want was to take pleasure in the otter in the stream, the magpie in the hawthorn, and the heron in the marsh, the brown mice in and out of the corn bin, and the ossel that had her nest in the willow under the bank. Your best poems came to you through your eyes, you never felt olfactory. I don't remember any poems about flowers or flowering trees, but is there anything, Yeats, in the world more beautiful than a pink hawthorn in flower, for all the world like one of those perflid waistcoats that men were in the war in the 16th century? And then, changing, changing the conversation, I told him an article which I should write, entitled The Soul of Edward Martin, if dear Edward should yield to popular outcry and withdraw the Countess Kathleen. But I wouldn't be walking about all the morning. Yeats, let us sit on a bench where the breeze comes, filled with the scent of the gilly flowers. What do you say to coming with me to see one of the old Dublin theatres, a wreck down by the quay, the quay? Some say it was a great place once before the Union. The ghost of a theatre down by the quay, I answered. One does not likely... Sorry, one does not like to speak of a double self, having so often heard young women say they fear they never can be really in love because of a second self which spies upon the first, forcing them to see the comic side, even when a lover pleads. Yet, if I am to give a full account of my visit to Dublin, it seems necessary that I should speak of my self-consciousness, a quality which I share with every human being, but as no two human beings are alike in anything, perhaps my self-consciousness may be different from another's. The reader will be able to judge if this be so when he reads how mine has been a good friend to me all my life, helping me to while away the tediousness of walks taken for health's sake, covering my face with smiles as I go along the streets. Many have wondered, and never before have I told the secret of my smiling face. In my walks, comedy after comedy rises up in my mind, or should I say scene after scene, for there are empty interspaces between the scenes in which I play parts that would have suited Charles Matthews' excellency well. The dialogue flows along sparkling like a May morning, quite different from any dialogue that I should be likely to find in hand, for in my novels I can write only tragedy, and in life play nothing but light comedy, and the one explanation that occurs to me of this dual personality is that I write according to my soul, and act according to my appearance. The reader will kindly look into his mind, and when the point has been considered he will be in a mood to take up my book again, and to read my story with profit to himself. Alright, well, I will... I accept your offer of doing that. Uh, and on that note, I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening.